Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with uh, two of my senior management team folks. I got Sean Gonsalves, ordinarily up in Massachusetts, chilling down in Florida, who is our editor and uh, and researcher and writer and thinker and communicator. And uh, I think that almost gets to all your job titles, Sean. That's right. That's right. Top of the morning or afternoon. Top of the top. Right. Yeah. Whatever time, whatever people are listening to, that's that's, that's what time it is. We're wishing them a good a good morning or afternoon. And we got and we got D. We should, I, I, you know, I like to call you D, but I actually feel like we could call you DC. Dn Cuellar, who is our organizing team lead, I believe. Is that right? I hate titles. What matters to me? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> like what matters is that you do you do all the local organizing assistance that we provide and things like that. That's right. I'm happy to. So we're going to talk about some different uh, topics in the news, and I thought we would start with one that uh, actually I think the two of you were the least involved in out of all of these topics, and that is the Affordable Connectivity Plan Dashboard Program Dashboard. Uh, this is something we unveiled. Uh, is it this week? It feels like so long ago. We've been working on it. Yeah, for no, it was last week. Okay. Last week. You did the press release, so you know. So, so what is the ACP Dashboard, and why are we so excited about a dashboard? I think we're excited about it because it's one of the hot, hottest things going right now, not just the dashboard, but the program itself. And that's because it helps so many, uh, so many families, um, so many households. Like more than 12 uh, or 13 million, I think now. I think that right. Chair yeah. Rosenworth will just announce that. Right. Um, and, th- and that is for the, uh, for the $30 per month discount, $75 per month if, you, if you're a tribal citizen that uh, subsidy from the federal government that helps pay for internet subscription, uh, internet service subscriptions. Um, and for, particularly for folks in Indian country, it's a, it's, it's a real lifeline. Um, and certainly that's true for a, a number of households who are enrolled in it, who are getting the $30 a month discount, which for a number of households, it makes what was unaffordable, at least doable. Um, and so the ACP dashboard, for me, the thing that makes it so interesting is that you can go to the dashboard and find out state by state, uh, zip code by zip code, even at the zip code level, how much is being spent as of right now, uh, how many folks are enrolled, and um, and most importantly, I, th- I assume you're saving this for last. For yes, <laughs> yes. See, I was trying to build it up, but most importantly, I think, which is when our predict predictive map uh, or predictive. Uh, algorithm or whatever you call it, uh, predicts the money will run out. Um, and that's a, a huge consideration, I think, because it's not that long before the money will run out and sure it needs to be reappropriated uh, unless or, or there's going to be millions of folks who are going to be surprised that what was the, the, to see their bill suddenly jump up and or, or worse. Um, maybe they right. find that they're kind of stuck with something that they can no longer afford or there could be perhaps, you know, termination fees associated. Now, certain folks feel like that actually wouldn't happen to folks in terms of, you know, termination fees and things like that. But still, the point remains, when this money runs out, there's going to need to be a reappropriation. And the way things work in terms of appropriating, probably the time is like now to start thinking about how to lobby for that. Right. Yeah. Probably right after the election. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. thinking about it now to do it right after the election, probably. Absolutely. Um, 
So I always want to come back to something because you said our algorithm and uh, it's definitely the work of, of, uh, of a few people in the team to make this yes. ACP dashboard. You know, uh, Christine does a lot of our GIS and data crunching uh, and, and, and Christine worked with uh, Rye and Emma on, on this whole project um, to make it happen. I mean, I, I don't know that we could pick a single person without which we couldn't have done it. Like there's just a lot of really great contributions, but the dashboard is elegant. It is attractive. The predictive model that, that Christine worked out is uh, has different uh, ability to assume different amounts of people enrolling because uh, we we don't expect 100% of people to be enrolled in ACP and how many people enroll um, you know at what speed changes how fast it will run out of money so that's all there and and predicted and there's a uh, it's updated regularly whenever new information comes out. So we're going to be keeping our eyes on it. And and I'm curious, Deanne, if you have any uh, thoughts about this. I mean, I know you have a lot of thoughts about the ACP, but uh, this is a great time to jump in and share them. I had this like vision in my head when the research team was working on this project. Like if you watch Wild Wild Westerns or yeah, Westerns, like from the Wild Wild West and there's like the cowboys going out to have a fight and coming back, you know, that they lost or won. Which means like I felt like we won when the research team was able to go live with this dashboard because it's such a huge advocacy tool. And it's yeah. so pretty. And that was it's for great. me, that was that was one of the things I kept harping on is that they were doing really great work and getting the numbers yeah. together. And I'm kinda like, but can we make it prettier? Like and Emma yeah. really stepped up for that. Uh and I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I like you hear on TV, like show me the money. When you do advocacy work, it's like show me the numbers. And so the, the ACP dashboard was great because like if you know, if you're able to go on there and click on it, you can click on your region, the region you're competing with, and you, you know, you've got data that you can visualize and numbers to have a conversation about the pros and cons of this program. Yeah. So ACP dashboard.com is a place to go to right. learn more about that. And, and, you know, we, I mean, maybe we don't want to reveal it here and maybe f folks should see it at the dashboard, but we actually didn't say when, when the model predicts the money will run out. Yeah, it's, uh, but like you said, it's sooner than expected. I think many of us, and and Rai takes this very seriously, you mm -hmm. know, as a, an academic futurian historian, That's she, right. um, futurarian, uh, and historian, uh, and and I, we're <laughs> we're expecting with different changes coming about, uh, basically, um, uh, two years from now, right? Yes. Uh, in uh, it'll be in twenty twenty four. We're pretty sure, but likely, right. kind of late summer, fall, likely. We think, right. Um, so this is, uh, I think, you know, something we're going to continue looking at. Uh, we do not think ACP is a great long-term solution. Like, let's just be clear about this, right? Like we want to track the numbers. And I feel like with a lot of this stuff, you can find the information if you know where to look and generally it's in Excel tables and things like that, but we wanted to try and make it accessible for people, but we are, and we think ACP is important to, to make things more affordable in the broken marketplace we have. But I just want to note that uh, we are not seeing very many steps to to fix the marketplace. And so, like, it's really important we put more money in the ACP because nothing is going to change in the next two years to make things more affordable. Uh, every Everything we're seeing is that the prices are going to keep going up and um, and probably up faster, uh, you know, um, with what's going on. Um, and I should say that I actually think that could be a very local phenomenon. I mean, you know, there's stories about how uh, Colorado Springs and several other places are, are getting a lot of fiber investment right now. 
and locally, we may see a number of places that uh, it becomes more affordable. Uh, and this actually, this wasn't on our rundown to think about it all, but I don't know, um, Deanne, I know you saw it closely and Sean, I think you, you know, paid a little bit of attention, but that report coming out of Los Angeles uh, showing that prices were lower where people have more money, you know, where there's competition and uh, the same services or much slower services are are more costly in, in areas, uh, neighborhoods that have lower incomes. Uh, that is what I would expect to see more of in in the future is that the competition may be working, but it'll be working among people that have the most disposable income. You know, I think the, the Biden administration talked a good game. Congress, we have some great folks in Congress who tried to make structural changes, but there was mm-hmm. enough people owned by the cable and telephone company that it didn't really happen. It's a, it is unfortunate, but um, that is the, 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 you know, going to your point about ACP being this important program because it's it's sort of the quickest way to get people connected that can't afford internet service but of course the infrastructure has to be there um, or the service needs to be there but it is a, a short-term solution insofar as this is a symptom of a broken market where you've got you know monopoly interests prevailing you know when you've got a, you know a monopoly controlling the market you would expect that the that that things will be not very affordable for 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 most folks particularly folks that are really uh, financially strapped. Yeah. And so that's where we can dive into far Texas where, where they're doing something about it. That's really interesting. When I was interviewing uh, folks in far who are building a municipal broadband network at one of the fastest paces we've ever seen uh, at the most affordable rate that we might have seen ever since Lafayette launched with a $20 a month tier in Louisiana. Uh, this is a $25 a month tier for 500 megabit symmetrical, crazy affordable speeds in one of the least connected cities. In a city that I thought of as being very close to to Deanne in San Antonio, but it turns out that Texas sure is big. And that little lump that pokes out the furthest south is is very big and long, too. So far is what, three and a half hours away from you at 80 miles an hour, Deanne? Yeah, it's far. Yeah, it's it's far. That is far. So, so you're, you know, I think you took some interest in this and we're about to publish a, a story about it to go with the, the podcast we just released on it. But um, Deanne, what are things that jump out to you about far Texas? Uh, the, the number one thing that jumps out to me about the city of far is their willingness to try to do something different. Like you said, the speeds and the rate and the, you know, the, the collective community coming together for a solution. I think that that's what sticks out to me the most. Yeah. And, and when you say that, I think it's worth highlighting something that, uh, Sean, when you're talking to some of the folks in Massachusetts and elsewhere, what's one of the things we were just talking about that they were saying about why, oh, like our city couldn't do it, you know, this. Right. Which is because uh, there, there isn't a municipal utility um, or, you know, already existing. So there are folks that think that if you, if you don't have a municipal electric utility that already exists, cities can't do this kind of stuff. Yeah, so enter Far Texas and also Fairlawn, Ohio is another one we often talk about. Uh, there are cities that are showing that with a good plan and the right partners, you can make it work. Uh, and not just that, but I mean, dang, I, I, I still, we don't, the podcast, I recommend people listen to it. Uh, I feel like I want to go back and listen to it again because I'm still trying to figure out how they're going to pull off a sustainable $25 a month, half a gig package, uh, which is based on them, I think, serving nearly everyone. But Right. I, I think that, yeah, I think 65% is the take rate that they're shooting for mm-hmm. um, to make all of that work. Although, you know, considering the connectivity there, they, you know, 
they probably have a, a, a good shot at, at, at reaching that, you know, those, that kind of take rate. That's where I think it's interesting. And, and Dean, you know a lot more about South Texas than Sean or I, obviously, but a city of 70,000 that doesn't have a decent cable option is uh, it's kind of surprising, uh, you know, just generally for a population of that size. It's a huge population in my mind, you know, for a city that's not a municipality, you know, here in Texas and where those cities are uh, located along the border. I mean, the whole state is like that. It has a it has a purpose. So I think that what you have down there is not only this idea of willing to try something new, but the leadership is also quite unique. Right. You have a mayor who's in a position of leadership that happens also to be a medical professional who's been working closely with stakeholders for his entire career. And so I think that this uh, this mayor is probably working closely with, with his city staff to, to think about all the possibilities for a solution and what we've got is FAR. And I think they credit National Digital Inclusion Alliance with pointing out that FAR was one of the worst connected cities as providing a motivation for them to make that a priority to fix among, I mean, they have multiple priorities. They have a lot of challenges they're dealing with, but they, this is a, this is a case of city politics working right. It looks like uh, where the city identified a key issue that it wanted to work on. It's, it's, it's seized federal dollars that are available to it. And it's, and it's also, um, we're trying to dig into the financing more to better explain it, but, um, but that's where, uh, you know, I think we, we, we complain a lot when things go wrong, but this looks like things going pretty right. It it looks that way. You know, one of the things with, with, you know, I think the estimated price tag for the network construction there is 40 million, which to me seems like a pretty low number for, for for a city of this size, but you know, I again, I don't know far the way Deanne and others do. You know, maybe there's a lot of multi dwelling units in, in in the city, and you know where they're able to you know pass many more premises than other cities are with a with a little bit less of an investment. When you raise that, I pointed out I think Longmont, which is uh, a little bit bigger and had some pre existing assets, I think they built in that similar neighborhood of cost, uh, fiber mm-hmm. out to everyone. But it did take them four years, and mm-hmm. uh, Far's looking to do it in less than two. So, right. um, you know, it's it's really impressive. It's it's a low number. It's not so low that I would think it's impossible. Yeah. So with that, I feel like it's worth jumping over to Syracuse, which none of us know anything about. <laughs> so why not talk about it on a podcast? But I just wanted to point out it poked, it, it jumped up and between FAR and Syracuse, it's it's a reminder that, uh, again, we live in a system in which uh, sometimes people get really, I, I feel like they get really cynical and, and they sort of feel like we can't do anything to change anything. Well, People in Congress made the American Rescue Plan uh, in order to provide uh, flexible money to cities to make sure they could put it toward broadband infrastructure. That passed. Uh, the White House um, you know, initially relaunched some rules that looked like they were kind of etched in stone. We didn't think that they would change. They were pretty restrictive on how cities could use it. And cities like Syracuse and maybe FAR might have had to jump through more hoops to use this money. But after a coalition of cities working with the National League of Cities and and us and others, uh, we you know, worked with the White House. They relaxed those rules, and now we're seeing cities making really interesting investments. And and so Syracuse is moving forward now with a plan to build publicly owned infrastructure for low income folks. And I think this is what I want to talk about: is Syracuse is doing it. But I think this is what we believe is going to be happening more and more in a lot of bigger cities. Not that they're going to come out with a plan to build everywhere like Far is, but that they're going to say, we have some money, we're going to target an investment. And if we make it work well, we're going to expand. 
you know, we're going to, we're going to build on that. And, and that I think is the smartest thing a bigger city can do. You're right. I, I think what's happening in Syracuse is that they're putting out, you know, an RFP to um, move forward with this pilot program that you, you're talking about, which is building out connectivity to just to households in the city that don't have access to high speed. I think it's like 2,500 in a given area. Like it's a, it's a fairly small number, but it's um, 2,500 folks that need a, need a solution. And, and, and they also want to enhance their, the, 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 I think their existing municipal network for the city um, in terms of smart city applications and things of that nature. So, um, and, right, because you know, I think to, they haven't done this in the past, right? Sorry, I cut you, I've cut you off yeah. like eight times now, so I no, should no, let you finish no. one thought. No, that's okay. I was, I, my thoughts come in chunks. Um, and one, and, and one thought that occurred to me too, is that I know that for example, Cambridge in Massachusetts is another city that's been you know kind of kicking the tires on a municipal network for and there's some momentum there to move to push forward there now they they're getting you know they they they're now doing a serious feasibility study and are looking at that but Cambridge is happens to be a city that has a lot of cash reserves on hand so if they really wanted to build a, a citywide municipal network they could without even without having to think about raising taxes or anything like that looking at Syracuse may be something that you know a, a city like Cambridge may want to do because they may want to focus uh, have a more targeted approach in terms of creating a, a more limited network that reaches the the folks in in a city like Cambridge that don't have access to broadband. Right, and in Cambridge in particular, it's really useful that that city manager that was I think it was the tire that kept kicking back. <laughs> um, you know, that he's gone now, and so they can actually move ahead because they've had a lot of political support for getting serious about making some investments. And uh, I feel like, you know, we've seen this from too many people who uh, they're too scared by this. They don't want to do it. They they'll talk about how broadband is super important, but they won't actually take steps to, to like fix the problem. And uh, and I, I think we should see more cities that are holding their elected officials and appointed officials at the highest levels accountable if they're not taking action to resolve these issues. So that in the conference of that conversation, I just remembered that we had a different piece of the ACP to talk about that I just barreled right over as we moved too far too quickly. Uh, and uh, that's what, what a recent exciting development regarding recruitment for ACP. And Deanne, you've been following this closely. Uh, what's going on with uh, the ability to pull more people into ACP? Well, when uh, the ACP program, um, you know, really hit the mainstream, two things that popped up was one, that it was difficult to enroll, and two, that there was no funding allocated for people on the ground that would end up assisting people with, to, with enrollment. So that has since changed as we you know, predicted and expected. So now there's $100 million that has been set aside for funding governments and um, nonprofits to, to assist people to, to enroll uh, by household. The application is not available yet, um, and nor are the rules that are going to govern the uh, grant making process. But it it's good. It's um, it's not too late. But it of course it was something that could have been probably helpful or early on. But it's here now. And I think the thing is that we still don't really have a good sense of what is really going on with ACP. We we have a suspicion that uh, the ACP signups have mostly been from companies that have a history of working in low income neighborhoods and have a whole path and like a, you know, a whole like system worked out for getting people signed up for these sorts of things. And so 
I think it was envisioned that ACP would help bring new families to connect to the internet, but but it seems that it's more the people who have gotten signed up or people that happen to be in areas where there are people that have either commercial interests or or you know like community obligation interests to try to connect people. So for instance, if you look at the maps, like several uh, reservations have very high numbers of signups because they've had uh, you know a real motivation to sign up. Uh, people that are living on the reservation to get the $75 a month to actually build out a network in many cases that would work. And uh, in other cases, we see that 60% of the people signed up are using it for mobile services. And we suspect that that's the companies who are using the mobile lifeline. Uh, they're using that same infrastructure. And and I think that's not really what we envisioned, right? Like we really wanted this to be more about people getting a high quality connection in the home, kids being able to do homework as opposed to subsidizing a, a mobile wireless plan, uh, which is important for people or that's the best they can do. But, uh, you know, I think we're we're hoping that this plan will help move people to a more sustainable connection. Uh, although, as we said earlier, there's not a more affordable connection on the way for most people, unless you happen to live in Syracuse or far Texas. Right. Well, yeah. And that was the other uh, tool or, re, you know, talking point that came out of the dashboard that Sean and I were looking at. We were for a period stuck on the, like the top 10 and like the, the lowest enrollment, you know, cities, but that changes day by day. And we right off the bat thought like, wow, people are going to look at that and say like, my city's doing great. Look at that. We're in the top 10. And if you really zoom in, it means like your city's doing great because the need is so big. Enrollment is high. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, it actually points to lack of competition, lack of affordability, um, which means there's probably other issues going on. But I wanted to point out something related to competition and um, affordability. Back to Los Angeles, where that, you know, where we found out about the neighborhoods have a, having different costs. They've been serving the community and they were somewhere around thousand surveys, but the that community going out there and asking um, households to share their rates has now blossomed across the state. So now Los Angeles has collected close to 2000, um, you know, survey results about people throughout the state of California that are reporting, you know, the disparities and the, what they're paying and what they're getting. Excellent. What's the umbrella group that's doing that work? The, it's the Coalition of Digital Equity Stakeholders and Organizations Working in Los Angeles County. The uh, I feel like this conversation has been too positive. So I want to, the flip side of what you were just talking about on the ACP dashboard in the top cities, I think is, I, w- I found it interesting that Minneapolis was one of the worst cities in terms of sign up uh, among the surveys, the cities that were surveyed. And that came right after Minneapolis had gotten a trailblazer, uh, you know, I uh, forget what the term is, notification award or um, acknowledgement from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. And it looks to me like, I mean, I feel like Minneapolis is one of these cities where we have elected officials who are good at checking boxes and pretending like they care about things, but then ultimately not actually making structural changes. And that's what we've seen. I mean, I don't see a lot of folks in Minneapolis uh, for the city really trying to fix these problems. I, I see them pointing fingers and hoping that Comcast is going to solve the problem. And uh, it didn't surprise me that Minneapolis showed up so poorly in the rankings. And it did surprise me that they were seen as a trailblazer. But I feel like this is something that people, I think, need to look closely at their local governments and say, you know, hey, are we just engaging in box checking or are we actually moving the needle here? I feel like you have a response to that, Dean. You can tell me I'm wrong, but I'm I'm just curious how you how you think about that. Because you've been you've been working in these cities and you've seen that tension. 
yeah, I think there's more to do than checking off boxes. You know, that's the point that I that I would make. And the other talking point that goes along with that is like if the community cannot see progress and you can't track towards success for closing the digital divide, you're just checking boxes. So this is where we'll we'll pivot quickly and then we're gonna wrap up to uh, two plans that I, I think are interesting. Uh, Boulder, Colorado is uh, nearly completing their uh, their broadband plan, which is not, I think, the final plan they have, but is the, the step of building uh, municipal fiber throughout the town to connect anchor institutions and things like that. And Erie, uh, which is the county that Buffalo is in, in New York, is um, has, has, has recently revised that plan. And Emma may have published a story on this i know emma's working on it and yes, um and so like if it isn't published yet it'll be up soon by the time this podcast is up and it's interesting i think you know something that we will see is more of these cities that are focused on that building out infrastructure and i i think there's a good place for that but i also think that if you think building you know just down arterial streets is going to solve this problem then you're going to be uh, unhappy in a few years <laughs> because, you know, it, it may help some providers uh, get to some places. And I mean, I'll say that like companies like Ting um, are, are pretty good about taking these networks and building out to everyone from what I've seen. Um, you know, other companies um, may also be doing that. They might be doing it more aggressively in some cases. And still other companies will look at that and say, hey, I can get to that wealthy neighborhood or that, you know, that strong middle class neighborhood that's going to hit that, you know, 40, 50 percent take rate. And I'm going to go there and then I'm going to go to a different town and I'm going to go th- to those neighborhoods there. Um, this is kind of the Metronet model. Like, hey, what if we just left behind a lot of the people that are harder to serve? <laughs> and so I'm worried about those sorts of of approaches. But uh, I think it's smart. And I, I'm curious, you know, I want to get a reaction from both, both of you about this because I've candidly made the case to cities that I don't think are ready to build a network to the home. Like in St. Paul, I've my own city. You know, I, I feel like if the city was to announce tomorrow that they were going to build a municipal fiber to the home network, I would be gravely concerned about their ability to execute that. <laughs> But I have said that, you know, like it would be smart for them to have assets throughout the city where, and the term that I use is if they wanted to project bandwidth into neighborhoods in the Mm -hmm. event of a pandemic or things Mm -hmm. like that, they would be able to do that without having to beg Comcast or someone else to, to mess around. And, and I think it's smart to do that as an interim step, but I think we need to be uh, realistic about how far that will take us. Yeah. I think that's, you're always much more practical, um, in thinking about these things. Which yeah, is- but see, Sean, you have like decades of covering local government. And so I feel like you have a better sense of like how things work and the politics and like just like a reality that like I'm I'm always curious how you react to things like that when I'm like, this is the way a city could do it. Like um, if you have a, a strong reaction. No, I, I actually don't have a strong reaction to that. And, and, I, and I think that's what I'm saying. I think it's practical because I think the kind of the way that you're laying out is actually probably less likely to bump into some of the politics that can really jack a project up that's that's more ambitious right but no city council the reason it doesn't happen more is no city council member gets to become mayor by saying i built a network that nobody sees and nobody uses really (laughs) right exactly (laughs) you know and this stuff also often takes longer than an election cycle i've never ran for office but i suppose it may be tough campaigning on something that you can't really say elect me for the next like three or four terms in a row so i can see this this thing through (laughs) right Deanne, I feel like, you know, you're in one of these cities that has that access and and has generally refused to take advantage of it. Um, I mean, in this case, you have a municipal electric that has the, the asset and they're kind of independent from the city. But 
Yeah, we we have um, municipal fiber in the city of San Antonio, and we have people who have ran on, um, you know, doing things with the fiber. And ha and we have people in office that make, um, you know, closing digital divide and community broadband infrastructure, you know, one of their main issues. It's not an easy uh, topic to advocate and, you know, ask people to vote for you on. You're right, Sean. Like, it takes a while. But I think that we've got some new people that are in office and that are running for office that are going to make this uh, their issue uh, based on uh, the resiliency of their city. Like, now it's not only is it front and center for, like, older adults and kids, but now it's, like, infrastructure, pandemic, we need the internet. Um, it's still moving pretty slowly, but at least it's more mainstream and it's now more popular knowledge. Yeah, I think that, that word resilience, uh, it means something more to me now in part. I have a close friend who is in not in the path of, but is in the vicinity of the Fairview Fire in California that's already claimed multiple lives. And, you know, I, I can't say that I'm a very close television news watcher, but I was talking to someone yesterday and I was just saying, I feel like we've gone from oh my God, there's a massive fire in California to, oh my God, there's always fires in California to people are dying in California in fires and it's not even a big story anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I mean, people are dying in some cases, not in this case, but sometimes in their homes because they can't get warned fast enough. And, and I mean, having, that's where we need telecommunications that will work, you know, among other things to make sure that people have the warnings that they need. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I remember, you know, not to turn this into a climate change podcast, but I mean, I remember 20 years ago, people were sort of laughing. Oh, ha ha ha. Like Minnesota will be nicer now that we'll have climate change. And like, you know, we're seeing, we're starting to see the effects and they're going to get worse. And uh, we need to take emergency communication seriously. On that note, that's. Uh... <laughs> so we went from like super positive to like, let's give you some really bad news. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got, well, I think what we could say is that there are definitely highs and lows and, uh, and, you know, like anything else, like I feel like Sean's uh, always ready to tell us what's going wrong, but, but Sean's also kind of on vacation. And so like, you're looking at what's happening, what's happy out there. Exactly. You know, life, life looks different when you're chilling. <laughs> and we didn't even talk about um, what's going on with, in Louisiana in East Carroll Parish. Yeah, boy, I'm looking forward to seeing how that gets resolved. We have to keep digging in to get more details on on that and the other challenges. I, that's something that we are working on behind the scenes. And if anyone has information about where incumbent providers are abusing the challenge process for state grants or other kinds of grants, please reach out to us. Uh, we know that, you know, Nick Coates and Peggy Schaefer in New Hampshire and Maine re respectively, um, you know, but we need to to get more information about this because this is, this is awful. And we need to make sure that, um, that we're going to do something about it. So we're going to turn that negative story into a positive one. Cause I think we can right. see, we're going to see a lot of States um, enacting better rules to make sure right. that we don't have this kind of crap. Right. I, that, that, that's what, that's what I think will be the silver lining of, of that kind of information. So that states realize that, you know, we, we need to put, we need to have rules in place that have a little bit of teeth that discourage, um, you know, existing providers from, from making fraudulent claims about areas that they serve and, yeah. and there, thereby delaying projects or, uh, uh, for years or, 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 you know, in, in getting into the courts, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, the folks that were being targeted for better service, better broadband, are, are waiting and waiting and waiting. Right. So for people who need more energy to organize, hopefully that'll help you. And <laughs> uh, we appreciate you tuning in, listening. And uh, thanks, Sean and Deanne, for taking some time to, to do the recording. And uh, we'll see you all 
in the near future. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.